Knowledge is power, and we are all about empowering the mamas of the world. In each episode, we will unravel and interpret the latest research and evidence-based practices for pregnancy, postpartum, and motherhood. As mums and researchers ourselves, we have experienced firsthand the overwhelming complexity of information, myths, and those classic old wives' tales. I'm Dr. Renee White, and this is The Science of Motherhood. Hello, and welcome to episode 78 of The Science of Motherhood. I am your host, Dr. Renee White. Hello, hello, hello. I hope you are all very well. It is a sunny, deceptively sunny, (laughs) but very cold and crisp day here in Hobart, where I record this wonderful podcast. We have got an amazing guest on today. I am so excited for you to listen to this interview. I was busting at the seams to speak with this individual because if you are a long-time listener, if you are a FYC village member and you receive my weekly emails on a Sunday evening, you will know that I have been on a bit of a road of self-discovery this year. I've decided to start putting myself first. (laughs) To put it bluntly, start putting myself first. You know, I am coming up to six years postpartum And I feel like, and this is not to terrify anyone who's just about to have a baby, but I feel like I'm only just starting to get my mojo back. Now, that is under the pretense that, yes, I had two years in lockdown in Melbourne, which was the capital of COVID lockdowns. So that did not assist the process at all. But yes, I feel like I'm only just getting my stuff together, shall I just say. And as part of that process, I have been reflecting on things like boundaries, where I put my energy, how I exchange my energy with people, places, jobs, relationships, parenting, all of that kind of stuff. And I'm just trying to be, and I know this is like a buzzword, but I'm not I'm not trying to make it a buzzword. I'm just trying to be really mindful of what I'm doing with my time and also trying not to bite off more than I can chew. And if I do do that, what are the steps that I need to take in order to, I guess, prioritise what's important to me. So that probably all sounds very vague and cryptic. (laughs) I appreciate that. But this person, I have been reading her book and I first learnt about her through a business coach and I can assure you that this is one of the best interviews ever ever, ever, ever. I just loved it so much. I never wanted it to end. And the reason I'm doing this obviously is because I, you know, delved into this space of mother care work as a postpartum doula almost three years ago. And, you know, that puts a different lens on how you view the world. You've got, you know, that personality and characteristics of caring for others, but I think it then forces you to 
take a step back and look at how you are caring for yourself. So for those who are interested, I am the director of Fill Your Cup Postpartum Doulas. We are Australia's first biochemist-led postpartum doula village, as in a previous life I was a crazy scientist. (laughs) But it's very exciting. We now have 15 doulas across New South Wales, Victoria and Tasmania, and it is a very special group of women who look after mothers in their postpartum period. So if you are looking for someone to assist you during those first 40 days or beyond and cook you beautiful nourishing meals, pop over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, and you can have a look at our offerings there. And as I mentioned before, those who want to join our email list, you get little snippets on the latest research in pregnancy, postpartum and motherhood, recipes, what's going on in my life, little check-in, <laughs> little, it's like a check-in Tuesday, but like in an email format. <laughs> so if you want to jump on over to our website, ifillyourcup.com, Com, you can join the FYC Village there if you just hit the link on FYC Village in that top tab and say join the FYC Village, which is very, very exciting. We all have a lot of fun over there chatting about all things birth, pregnancy and postpartum. So I should in- introduce this wonderful guest that we have today. Now, as I said, this individual is someone who I heard her on another podcast with my business coach, actually. And as I was listening to her, I was just like, oh, I'm going to go real big here because I think it's warranted. I feel like, I feel like this guest is, is like the Brene Brown of Australia. Just putting it out there. Her name is Dr. Rebecca Ray. She is a pilot turned clinical psychologist and we talk about that that transition. She's an author, speaker and student of life on a mission and I love this tagline that she's got on her website, to use a science-backed heart and hard truth approach to helping big picture thinking people like you live a life that's fulfilling, unapologetic and free. <gasps> That last bit, the unapologetic and free part, is what really resonates with me. And I have been reading her book, Setting Boundaries, which is a fascinating read. Again, longtime listeners will know that I am a huge fan of Dan Siegel's work. He is a child clinical psychologist and he wrote one of my favourite books, Whole Brain Child, which looks at brain development in children and kind of how to nurture their development and support them during, you know, those hard times, like those things that we, people call, you know, the terrible twos and the troublesome threes and all that kind of stuff. It's not really that case. They're just, their brains are very, very immature and they're developing. And I feel like Beck, Beck's writing is so similar to Dan's which is probably what like really grabbed me. So just for reference, I 
had the book and the very first time I opened it, I was just literally standing in the middle of the kitchen. I thought, I'm just going to open it. I'm just going to like, you know, read the first page or whatever. And it grabbed me so quickly that I was literally standing in the middle of my kitchen (laughs) reading the book for half an hour. Like I couldn't move. I was like paralyzed. I was like, oh my God, this is just, it's like she's in my head. So Beck has also written five other books, Be Happy, The Universe Listens to Brave, The Art of Self-Kindness, Small Habits for a Big Life. And very, very recently she has just released her, her new book called Difficult Conversations, which I feel like, and I haven't read it yet, is, is equivalent to the sequel of setting boundaries. So setting boundaries is all about learning about your brain and what boundaries are and why we need them and kind of, you know, understanding the context of boundaries. And, you know, the last chapter is is kind of, you know, how to implement it into your life. And so once you've kind of graduated at the end of that book, Difficult Conversations is, so Beck tells me, the book to help you have those conversations with those people who maybe aren't respecting those boundaries and you are then forced to have those difficult conversations. So it, I can't wait to read it. It's going to be, if it's anything like the first book that I've read, it's going to be amazing. So in today's chat, we talk about what boundaries are, How do you know when you need to establish better boundaries? Beck has this whole chapter in the book about something called protection selves, which is a very, very interesting. I was like, oh man, (laughs) that was the part of the book. I was like, yes, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. And then we go through a few real life examples starting from pregnancy around boundaries and, you know, how to kind of implement things. What do you do when your mother-in-law wants to be at the birth or, you know, nosy Karen from next door is on your doorstep trying to cuddle the baby every two seconds and all you want to do is rest after your marathon birth. We look at comparisonitis you know, in motherhood, my goodness, you know, that is something that I still struggle with. And of course, our wonderful rapid fire at the end. So I know (laughs) that you are going to absolutely love this interview. I'm putting money on it. This was just such an amazing chat with Beck. It is going to be part one because we are definitely having her back to discuss the second book, which is Difficult Conversations. I can't wait to read it. But without further ado, here is Dr. Rebecca Ray. Hello and welcome to the podcast, Dr. Rebecca Ray. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me, Renee. Okay, so let's just get it out of the way. I'm not going to call you Dr. Rebecca Ray for the rest of the conversation. It is now Beck. Please don't. Yes. <laughs> we've, we've just spoken uh, uh, offline that when everyone um, refers to each either one of us about Dr. Whoever, you're like, what, what, who's this? What's going on here? Yes. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on. And I just wanted to fill the listeners in. So I first heard Beck on 
And if you're a long-time listener, you will know who I'm talking about. My business coach, Fiona Kalaki's podcast, My Daily Business, and you were on there talking about boundaries. And then a few months ago, we were featured in the same article in the Body and Soul Sunday magazine, and that was talking about urgency culture, which is, you know, kind of still the flavor of boundaries around like, okay, guys, you need to protect your time. And I was interviewed as the case study. So I was literally like the girl with the limelight on her of (laughs) what not to do (laughs) and how to push through it. And I think the listeners and those who subscribe to our weekly email will very much know that I'm going through a process of self-care, self-discovery, trying to implement boundaries and it's just kind of where I'm at in my life. I feel like I'm six years postpartum and I'm finally kind of getting to know who I am again, which we're going to talk about that today, Beck. I think, you know, around mums having that shift in identity and then I feel like we kind of have to reset our boundaries because things have just changed around that. Mm. But before we dive in, tell us about you, Beck. And I... I want you to tell us about that time that you were a pilot. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Okay, we're going way back. This one time I was a pilot. So that was a time in my life where I was a very vulnerable teenager, I guess wanting to prove something to the world. I was a traumatised teenager, didn't really realise how badly at that point. And um, because, you know, when you're 18, you're kind of 10 foot tall and bulletproof and Mm -hmm. think that you are fine. And I was not fine, but my best friend was my grandfather. One of my best friends was my grandfather, Ronnie, and he was a private pilot. He had his own aircraft and he said to me, look, flying is just as easy as driving a car. Okay. Now, what I didn't know (laughs) is that that might have been true for Ronnie, but it was (laughs) bullshit for me. Um, So it kind of appealed to me that if I did something big and flying felt big, then maybe my anxiety would go away. Maybe that would prove that I was okay. And surely if you can fly a plane, you're not anxious anymore, right? Because if you can do that, then you can do anything. Yeah. So I did that. I got my private pilot's license, but a bit of a problem was I was still anxious. So I thought that the logical step to that would be to add a commercial pilot's license to that. Of course. Of course. (laughs) Yes, that is the Um, logical next step. (laughs) Logical step, especially if your anxiety is bad enough that you want to vomit on your way to the airport. Anxiety was still bad. So obviously the next step is to add a night flying rating, a multi-engine rating, and then finally win a scholarship for more flying training Uh and do your instructor rating. That makes sense. Yes. Surely. Surely that will fix everything. Yes, it will. Um, It did not fix everything. What? (laughs) And I was still chronically anxious. And in fact, it took all that flying to realize that I was blatantly acting outside of my Mm non-negotiables. So I'm actually just a super boring person. I really love, like, I put a bra on for you, Renee. Like, this is (laughs) like, it's a, I I actually. Thank you, Beck. (laughs) Yes, I got dressed for you. But I love working from home, going to the same room every single day and doing the same thing because what changes is what's in my brain. Mm -hmm. I have such a real uh, rich internal world that I don't need things around me to change Mm -hmm. um, because of what I create. And so 
Flying just violated every (laughs) non-negotiable I had for routine, basically, because everything changes when you're flying every single day and I couldn't cope. So I then finally had to acknowledge that I didn't want to fly anymore. Despite the fact that I could fly, I never failed a flight test. I got good feedback from all my instructors. I had to acknowledge that that was not right for me. And so that that felt like a huge failure. And I had started studying psychology at uni but deviated to think that, of course, if you're anxious, the thing to do is to go and become a Qantas pilot. Yeah. Like, sure, that's yeah. the answer. That's right? the answer. Um, so I had to not do that and then return to psychology. And so I was in private practice for quite some time. Oh, initially, I started treating, uh, I worked with veterans, and then I moved into private practice, and I spent a very long time in private practice, largely working with police and military personnel, and lo- work that I loved. Mm. And... I did too much in a short space of time. Mm -hmm. So I, again, I don't know what I was trying to prove, but I think I was just stuck in a roundabout of not wanting to say no to my referrers and not wanting to let patients down. Um, If they needed me, I was there. And so I got to the ripe old age of 35 Mm -hmm. and had to end my clinical career 35 years prior to when I'd planned to end it. I thought I would be in clinical practice until I was 70. Wow. And I loved it that much. So I had to walk away and I walked away. It was that bad that I had lunch with a a colleague of mine on the 15th of January, 2015. And um, he said to me, Beck, if you don't do something, your body is going to make the decision for you. Yeah. And so two weeks later, my clinic was closed. Wow. Bang. I just had to close it then and there for my own well-being, but also dragging out the closing process is not a good thing for patients. So Mm. I simply just had to move on and thinking I would return. I thought that would be a break. I honestly Uh did. And I took 12 months off and then I returned to it in a part-time way, but I just couldn't anymore. I My body just couldn't manage it. My brain couldn't manage it. The anxiety returned. I just wasn't functioning at my best. So the last client I saw was the day before I gave birth to my little boy in 2018. Oh. And um, I, in my head, I was going on maternity leave. But okay. also that maternity leave was kind of like, this is your chance to recreate your life and not go back and do that again. Yeah. So I was left with not knowing how, I didn't, I didn't know what I would do. Like, how do you, how do you have a career if you don't see patients? I don't know. I wasn't a research psychologist. I I didn't know what to do. And so I just thought, well, maybe I could translate all the knowledge and wisdom that I've learned through the like 15 years of clinical practice and put that out to a bigger audience online. Now, I didn't even have a Facebook profile at this point, (laughs) Renee. Like I just, no, that's, I hated social. I still don't, I don't love social media, except that it gives me direct access to my people. Yeah. But um, I was then like, well, maybe I'll just try something. And so then I just landed in a place where I kept redefining and realigning my voice and my philosophy. And I got approached by a publisher and here we are today. I I now write books and I mentor um, really big picture thinking, amazing people. And I just put work out into the world work that I feel will make a difference to other people's lives. Mm, God, that's amazing. What a story. I, I just, yeah, I would love to know how, like when you went on mat leave, quote unquote, 
I feel like that would be a huge step because not only are you seeing that kind of identity shift into I'm becoming a mum, was that becoming a mum for the first time? Yeah. Yeah. So becoming a... That's an only time. Yeah, okay. It costs a lot of money to make babies when you've got two mums. Yes, yes. So first and only time. And also pregnancy was really, really shit for me. So we're not doing that again. So we got a beautiful child and I'm so grateful for that. And we're done. Thanks. I feel you. Uh, We are one and done. (laughs) Yes. As well. I I just, I I don't know, like my heart feels for you because it's like, the identity shift of becoming a mum is like so fucking hard in and of itself, but then leaving a job that you absolutely love and then having that as the not sure part. Like I think Mm. for a lot of people like myself, I'm like, okay, becoming a mum, that's okay. I'm going to take 12 months off, but I know what that future is probably going to look like. Like we're all roast into glasses at that stage. We have no idea what's coming for us, but but that is, I just want to acknowledge how difficult that would have actually been um, mm. to have that level of uncertainty. And as you said, you now put these amazing creative works into the universe. You are the author of up to, <laughs> coming up to six books next week. Woo! Yeah, yeah. And we are going to have a chat about one of them in particular, which is for all those playing at home, I'm holding it up now. <laughs> it's actually really, I love the colours. It's setting boundaries and I love the kind of subscript, which is care for yourself and stop being controlled by others. Oof. <laughs> now, yep. I would love, because we, I feel like this word is like thrown around a lot, like boundaries. We need to protect them. Where are your boundaries? But can you talk to us about what are boundaries? Like if we were to define those, what are we actually talking about with boundaries? Yeah. I think it's a really good question because if you looked it up in the dictionary, it probably says something like a dividing line. Yeah. But I actually don't think of boundaries as division. I think of them as lines of connection and that's because I consider them to be circles of empowerment and preservation in relationships. So they help you to actually establish where your personal, sorry, where your personal resources are going to be distributed and to make sure that you're not giving away your choices about how you live this one precious life, thank you, Mary Oliver, Mm. to someone who's not you. So I think what boundaries or what a lack of boundaries tends to do is to open up your personal resources. We're talking about things like time, energy, all the different types of energy, money, attention, care, support, giving away those things to people who are not you. Now, when you have boundaries, you still give, but you give in a considered way. Mm -hmm. You consciously think about the resources that you have available in your giving tanks and then make sure that you give give to other people in a way that's not going to burn you out. I I actually think that boundaries are a relationship gift. Yes, yes. I, I, I really think, I think they're, they're like your user manual in relationships. It's, it's taking away the guesswork because with my boundaries, I show you how to care for and respect me. I don't expect you to just guess how to do that. I love that in so many different ways. I love the fact that you said it's actually a connection, not a division, because I think more often than not, people are like, no, you need to respect my boundaries and you're like, <laughs> 
you know, divide the line and you're not coming in. And, I mean, I am absolutely guilty of that. The younger person that I was was very much like black and white. Like it has to be either nothing or all. And that's what I thought worked. I'm slowly discovering that that is not the case. And it's actually okay as you say, to kind of go, okay, no, I'm happy to support you or, as you say, give your time and energy. Something that I've been banging on about for quite some time is I'm a huge fan of um, Eve Rodsky's work, Fair Play, around the balancing of running the house. Mm. (laughs) And, you know, kind of whether my husband approves of it or not, he's coming along for the journey because... He's do you live here too? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's as I've said to people, it's as simple as you know, I was getting so burnt out by the end of the day from like the second shift, as I call it, and everyone else kind of calls it. It's like, okay, finish work, then I'm doing dinner, they'll be tidying up, then I've got to do the bath bedtime routine. By the time my daughter falls asleep, I've got to come out and then I've got to do lunch boxes, and then I'm like, Jesus, man, like. I, I'm cooked by the end of the day. And so it was just small steps in terms of, like I said to my husband, when I'm putting her to bed, do you think you could make the lunch boxes for tomorrow? Mm -hmm. Because then we can sit down on the couch together when I come out and we can actually spend quality time because otherwise I'm coming out just feeling resentful and shitty. That's right. It gives you both back that extra 20 minutes, but it's also that the act of participation, which I think is so underrated. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, all right. So we've established like what boundaries are or rather, you know, what they are not. For the listeners, can you explain, because some people might be feeling a little bit ambivalent. And I actually did a, um, I did an IG poll the other day and I was asking people about their boundaries. And I think the three kind of options were, enforcing them like I've got a wall up <laughs> or a moat, I think I called it. <laughs> I've built a moat. I've got this. Or take all the time that, or, and all my, like, needs and I'm, like, you know, it's swamped or yep. it, I'm a work in progress. So there are, I feel, like a mixed bag, which you would know. Mm. For those people out there, how do we know, I guess, whether we need to establish better boundaries? Like what are the things that we should be looking for? Look straight to your feelings. Your feelings are the best guide here. I want you to look out for irritation, frustration, resentment, and anger. So they're all the feelings that are going to tell you that some line within you or outside of you is being crossed. Now, the key here is you can visit Resentmentville, a little town that I developed for people that really struggle with their boundaries, but I don't want you to buy real estate there. Mm -hmm. So This often happens for people pleasers where you simmer for so long, you know, you're resenting the second shift, Mm -hmm, let's say. mm -hmm. So that's happening and it might happen for years on end after you first give birth before you finally communicate about it. And in that time, the resentment is not just a visit each night to Resentmentville, it becomes that's where you live yeah. so that you actually then see your partner through that lens all the time. Here's what you don't do for me rather than here's how we both contribute to not, not just our relationship but our domesticity. And so I, I think the first thing that I really want listeners to understand is that your 
emotions are messengers. They're there for a reason. They're giving you really valuable data about what is and isn't working. Now, this is not necessarily across the board. So if you, let's say you feel resentful, that doesn't mean you're feeling resentful of everyone Mm. in your life. It's likely it's just one particular person in one particular area of life. Mm -hmm. But pay attention. Because so often what we do, especially as women, is we're fairly conditioned to ignore our emotions. Oh, my God, yes. A, because if we don't ignore our emotions, we're labelled as deaverish or hysterical or high-maintenance. But that also, we're also just taught to suck it up because there's no one else that's going to come in and do that for you. Now, I really encourage people when they're first trying on their boundaries to understand that a boundary doesn't exist unless another person knows about it. And even the person that loves you most in the world, your partner, the one that you live with, and possibly in this specific conversation, the one that you share a child or children with, Mm -hmm. they probably, very likely, because they are a different human with a different way of being brought into the world and a different way of being raised, they probably share the same values as you, but they may very well have a very different way of looking at things than you do. So if you expect them to just know what you need, then you're already setting yourself up to make life harder because sometimes all we need is a little bit of concrete and specific communication that says, could you at this time in the evening, could you prepare the lunch boxes? Mm. And all of a sudden that's a game changer for the entire relationship because A, they know what to do. You told them, you told them what you need and the action that is required. So they don't need to think, they can just show up. And B, they don't get stuck in their own emotional paralysis because they know the energy of resentment. They know you're annoyed, but they honestly don't know how to fix it. (laughs) So they just kind of think, oh, well, I won't do anything because I'm only going to get in trouble. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's such a good point because I was, (laughs) and again, I'm a work in progress. I am not perfect. But like previously, I would just be like, can you go get the bag ready for childcare? And he'd be like, yeah, like what do I have to do? And I would feel resentful because I would be like, well, no one told me how to do it. I just had to work it out. And so I would get so cross and I'd be like, just work it out. I get it off my plate, bro. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Yeah. But yes, when, when you're sleep deprived and you're burnt out, it is a really hard kind of thing to talk about, which... We're going to talk about some specific examples in a minute, but I think that's one of the number one reasons why, particularly before the baby arrives, to start talking and getting clear on your communication and and Mm -hmm. how that's all going to work out before, you know, you're boiling boiling (laughs) and exploding. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, One of the things I found fascinating in the book was that you spoke about these things called the protection selves. And, you know, as as I said off air, I was like, okay, there I am. I'm here. <laughs> That's me. And as, as I was reading, like, some of the paragraphs, I was like, oh, my God, she's in my head. <laughs> and it's, and it's, um, it's frightening and it, but at the same time, refreshing to know that I feel like I've been seen. And I was like, okay, let's get to the part where we fix this. <laughs> so I I would 
And the other thing that I wanted to mention as well, and one of the reasons why I absolutely love this book, is it, to me, it has a very similar flavour to one of my very, very favourite books, The Whole Brain Child by um, Dan Siegel. And yeah, so right. I haven't actually read that. Oh, man, it is so good. that I picked that up. I don't even know who told me about it, but my daughter Eva was turning like two and a half-ish and lots of big emotions and lots of big outbursts. And I was like, oh, my God, what is this? And, you know, the scientist in me is like, okay, find out what's happening in her brain and then hopefully we can manage this. And so I found that book and Dan writes very similar to you. I love the fact that you actually talk about the physiology, what's going on yeah. and understanding all about that because I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's the why. Yeah. So I would love for you, can you walk us through what these protection cells are? We're talking about the guardian, the rebel, the child, the conformist and the refuser mm-hmm. and explain to the listeners what that's all about and and I guess how that understanding can kind of bring some insight into how we're going to tackle boundary maintenance. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So in the book, I talk about your conscious, authentic self, which I call your inner leader. That's the part of you that can lead forward to be able to do something that's hard, that might be like set a boundary mm. <laughs> that feels uncomfortable to do. But your protection selves are like the committee of voices that are sitting in your unconscious that are led by fear. They're also led by limiting beliefs, resentments, unhealed hurts, all that kind of stuff that sits within you that says, no, I just need to keep safe. So the answer to any problem is that we react to keep ourselves safe. We don't really care what's most effective for listeners. I'm doing air quotes in this particular scenario. What we care about is what keeps us emotionally safe. So your guardian, I want you to imagine that your guardian is the part of you that builds a brick wall. So your guardian believes that basically it protects itself. It shuts down before you can actually be hurt. So the brick wall stops anyone from actually getting in. It's kind of catch cry is protect yourself at all costs. So bearing in mind that as we talk through these protection selves, you might Everyone has all of them, but you might have one that's more dominant than the others and maybe even a secondary one that likes to pipe up every now and again. The rebel, the rebel is the one that says, you can't make me. So your inner leader is there trying to say, hey, people, if we just like calm down and if we say the things that we need to say, then we could set a boundary here and it could change our lives and it could create deeper connection with this person um, in question. And your protection selves go, <laughs> you got you can't be serious because there's no way that I'm stepping outside my comfort zone to communicate in a different way. I know the strategies that keep me safe. Thank you very much. And I'm not doing that. And your rebel is the one that kind of gives you the middle finger and says, yeah, no, thanks. Your inner child, your child is the part of your protection selves that is very regressed. So if you think of yourself, I always find this hard to think about because Oh, it's just like my behavior at its worst. But the time when you throw a tantrum Mm -hmm. in your adult body and Mm -hmm. you just think, oh God, Rebecca, how old are you? Like, honestly, (laughs) are you three or are you 43? I'm actually 44 now. But like, honestly, how old are you? 
we all have these parts inside of us and your chi- your child is actually led by fear, but it also feels helpless and often acts out. Mm-hmm. Your rebel will act out as well, but in a more adolescent kind of way, mm-hmm. kind of like, no, I know better, you can't make me. Your conformist is the people pleaser. So it's the one that says, as long as I am perfect, as long as I make sure that there is no flaws that can be visible about me, then I'll be okay. Then other, if other people approve of me, then I'm okay. If I get validation outwardly, then I'm okay. So your conformist has a lot of trouble being validated by your inner leader. So if you try self-talk on where you say, actually, I'm doing a pretty good job. Like I'm trying my best here. I'm doing the best that I can with, with what I have available. If you have a dominant conformist, you might find that your conformist goes, yeah, but what does dad think of us? Um, no, like what does my boss think of us? Like, cause that's more important. Mm. And place, or what is my best, I'm compared to my best friend, like she's doing heaps better than I'm doing. And your conformist struggles to actually take your word and your belief about how you how you do or how you're doing as the, I guess, the most important opinion. So I often talk about the most important opinion being yours. Actually, the most important p- opinion is of your 80-year-old self. You know, what would your 80-year-old self say about how you're doing today? Because that's the only opinion that matters. Mm. Um, But your conformist struggles with that. And then there's your refuser. And your refuser is basically the protection self that is driven by avoidance. So it says, oh, yeah, you know this whole boundaries thing? Yeah, no. No, thanks. Not available. Nope. No, could lead to conflict, could lead to an argument. I don't do that. So no, thanks. No. They're walking all over us? I don't care. I'm not available for that conversation. I can't do it. Nope. And so nothing happens if you let your protection selves lead, and I promise you they will try because they are driven by Mm self-protection. They believe that they have your best interests at heart. They're not trying to help you. They're simply just, sorry, they're not trying to force you to do anything you don't want to do. They simply are saying, we know how to make sure that you're protected. Mm -hmm. But if you let them lead, then you'll end up in a cycle of being led by fear. And fear usually is just a roundabout. You know, you just go round and round and round the same issue and nothing gets solved. So they have a job to do and their job is to simply listen to the fear and say, this is scary, let's not do that. Whereas your inner leader is the conscious, authentic part of you that says, I'm a work in progress and I can start doing something new for the greater growth of all of us. Mm. So your the job of your inner leader is to validate your protection selves. I know that you're scared and I know that we've been hurt before and I see how hard you're trying to protect me. And I believe, I relentlessly believe in our potential to move forward and to grow. Oh, my God. As you were, like, talking through each of them, I was like, Yep, that life moment. Yep, that life moment. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Oh, man. I honestly thought, well, I could, I could definitely see myself in different phases of my life where I was 100% guardian. Mm-hmm. And then probably my earlier self was um, rebel. But one of the things that I struggle with is that I think with the conformist thing, that judgment of others, comparisonitis, like that I think is such a crippling thing for me. But 
And I don't think I'm alone. Like I see it a lot in. Especially not in mum culture. Yes. I think think comparisonitis is just, it's such a dangerous phenomenon, especially. uh, It depends where you find yourself. But if you're not in safe spaces, Mm. I really think it can be incredibly toxic, you know. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that's where I think you definitely need to take stock and go, when am I feeling like that? Like that's that's exactly what I've been doing recently because I know mm. that it's a big trigger for me. Certain mm. things or people I'm around and I'm like, oh, yeah, that's coming up again. I think mm. I'm just going to back off for a second and just shut that down because yep. I'm not feeling good about that. But, yeah, yep. again, work in progress. <laughs> yes. Just like. Aren't we all? Just. Uh, <laughs> Just a long journey of self-discovery. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I love that. And I'm hoping that some of the listeners are like nodding along going, oh, yeah, that's me. I, I actually started to picture, because I'm such a visual learner, um, that Inside Out movie with all the characters in the yep. head. And you're like, no, yep. don't drop the ball. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and it's, Absolutely. It's funny, like, I now have a saying with my friends, like something big will happen and I'll go, bing, core memory. <laughs> it's so true. It's, that, in, that movie is just so intelligently made. It's just clever. I love it. I can't, my, my daughter's watched it. I mean, she's six, nearly yeah. six, and she kind of doesn't really get the whole thing yeah. at the moment, but I cannot yeah. wait for her to be like, oh, yeah, yeah, mum, I yes. get that now. Beck, I wanted to talk the listeners through some specific examples that mm-hmm. I'm going to say they're not really real life, <laughs> particularly for, for me in all instances, but they're things that kind of crop up time and time again that I've heard in circles with my own friends and or with clients in our doula work. But I wanted to start off with, you know, talking talking people through how we would deal with particular boundary establishment in these scenarios and then yep. what people can do to kind of implement some things. So I guess where I love to start is with pregnancy. I don't know what it is about pregnancy, but I found that as soon as someone announces that they're pregnant, I definitely found this, For some reason, even though you may have established great boundaries or mediocre boundaries, it appears like all bets are off Mm. when you are pregnant. And I don't know if you found this, but it was kind of like all of a sudden your body becomes something that everyone thinks that they can talk about. The Mm. gender of your child, the concept of how you're going to birth and what that looks like, how you're going to raise your child, all of these things. I'd love your comments on what do you think that is all about? And if someone was to kind of experience that from a co-worker, you know, nosy Karen from across the road or or whoever it is, how do you deal with that? I think it's about having rules in your own mind around whose opinion counts. So I do think through the entire pregnancy experience um, and then certainly through motherhood, it's about making a decision for yourself 
whose opinion truly counts. And I would keep that to the smallest number of opinion, uh, sorry, the smallest number of people possible. Mm -hmm. So in pregnancy for me, it was my obstetrician and my wife. That's it. Nobody else's opinion had any kind of weight, but that didn't stop certain comments from hurting. So Mm. I remember I was walking in Sydney down a main street in Sydney. I was down there for a speaking gig and I was five months pregnant and some random guy uh, who was sitting, so he may have been on the streets, I'm not sure, because he was sitting down against a building and he yelled out at me and said, wow, you must be about to give birth tomorrow. And then I had my nan, God bless her, she's not here anymore, but she said to me about two weeks prior to giving birth, we were looking down at a a swimming pool from um, her balcony. She had a unit that was like, I don't know, 20 floors high. And she said, um, oh, look, Beck, that's where the whales belong down in the pool. Oh, my God. uh, then she she laughed and she she made a joke and I was just like like she's ninety whatever like she doesn't have a filter, but um those types of things stay with you right yes. they stay with you and they they if you let them they can define your experience um and it seems to me that people have very strong feelings about pregnancy and about child rearing and those strong feelings seem to last across their parenting journey mm. so that they feel some sense of entitlement about broadcasting their opinions to onto you whether you've asked for them or not and so i think it's very important especially in pregnancy because your body is doing a whole series of things that often make you feel very uncomfortable especially if you have a pregnancy that makes you feel sick where you can shut out the noise and you simply just go within and make sure that you're looking after your body in the way that makes you feel the best that it can possibly be. Mm -hmm. And any discussion around birth is between you and your obstetrician. Like that's it. No, we're not having a discussion about from neighbor Karen and what she thinks that you want to home birth in a pool. Well, I don't care, Karen, what you think, because that's my decision about my particular way of birthing. And so I think that this opinion meter needs to be needs to belong between you and your people and no one outside of that. Mm. So it's about, I guess, just leaning into those convictions and going, okay, what what is the most important thing? And I one of the things that I loved about the start of your book was and I love these things in books where you actually get people to write down and do like exercises, like read this chapter. Okay. Now there's time for self-reflection and there's, oh, I can't find it now, but there's like a whole section where you were talking about your values and your self worth. And I think that that's something that like as as along my, you know, personal discovery thing, and I have this conversation, this is like very TMI, I've never spoken about this on the podcast, but I've had like this moment on to- in time with my husband and I'm like, fuck, what are my values? What do I stand for? What is it? And he's like, you're a very passionate person. You love mother care and advocacy, science. Well, it's, I find it's really easy for other people to tell you, but mm. then sometimes you know, coming back to that point of like, you just need to like kind of lean on your own values and convictions. I think for some people, it's really hard to yeah, do that it sometimes. Is. 
It is, especially if they've been raised by grown-ups who didn't give them a say in what their values were or who denigrated them as soon as they had values outside of their parents' core belief system. So, um, for example, I vote differently to my parents. We never discuss politics Mm -hmm. as a result because my parents just wouldn't tolerate that discussion knowing that I vote differently. Yeah. Um, I'm not even sure that they know they vote they know that. If mum listens to this podcast, then I'll guess she'll know. <laughs> hey mum. But that top yeah, <laughs> hi mum. But there's when you make a conscious decision to do something one way because it matters to you, because it matters to who you want to stand for and what you want to believe in and what you want to show to the world you are, that's well and good until it's challenged by significant people in your life mm. um, when it can be very hard to stay close to those convictions. And I think pregnancy is one of those things because most people have a child-related experience. Whether they have their own children, they are an aunt or an uncle and involved with children in some way, even on the periphery. And so, therefore, they can often feel like they have an entitlement to have an opinion and to force that upon you. And I think that goes for everything, not just child rearing and not just pregnancy and birth, but the fact that, you know, can't, can we all just please stop and have a think about whether or not it's okay to vomit those beliefs on another person simply because you're breathing the same air? I just really, I feel strongly about that because I, I believe that you can believe whatever you want, but I don't need to hear about it. I don't need you to force it upon me. And if our beliefs are different, well, then so be it. We don't necessarily need to be in each other's spheres. Yeah. So it's just for those people that remain in your sphere, so you can't necessarily get rid of them from your life or you don't want to, then you need to find a way of coexisting that doesn't constantly antagonize each other. Now, I trust our listeners to take responsibility for themselves around that, but other people don't always do that. Mm -hmm. And so we need to be mindful of that, that sometimes it's just a case of making that boundary that where this is not up for discussion. Oh, my God, I love that so much. I feel like this is like a little um, pep talk for me for this week. (laughs) (laughs) I want to talk to you about another example, and this is Mm -hmm. something that we talk about a lot with clients is the fact that there's this bombardment of visitors and we 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 actually offer a, a particular kind of service as part of our postpartum doula work where people come to us and say here's everything that I want to communicate to my friends and family before the baby arrives my brain is cooked because I'm cooking a baby can you yes turn this into a communication and I'm an attorney as well so I know how to like communicate in a very Love fair that. and firm way <laughs> yes and I put a bit of comedy in there so everyone's like kosher about it all and yeah. everyone can have a laugh but it's typically around the fact that it's like we're not taking hospital visitors mm-hmm. we're not going to have people visit our house unannounced mm. and then after that you're going to have to go through like what I call the gatekeeper which is the partner mm. Um, Mm. and P.S., if you are sick, you know, with cold, flu, Ebola or whatever, unless you have a hazmat suit, you're not coming, right? Yeah. How do, like, if if people, if people don't have me drafting those for them. (laughs) Yeah. How do people communicate 
with friends and family around respecting the fact that they've just had a baby, that these are their wishes? Like how does that go for someone who is maybe a people pleaser? And this is often the conversation that we have. They're like, you know, my husband really wants his mum to be there in the room straight after the birth or maybe during the birth. You know, how do we have those conversations with our loved ones without, you know, fracturing relationships? Yeah. So the first thing that's critical, and you've just said it, is to communicate. Mm. So (laughs) the most important thing is you can't, unfortunately, just kind of glide through it and hope that people will know. They won't. Mm. And unfortunately, um, they might think that actually their way is the right way. You know, many people think this. And therefore, they'll just assume that they can do whatever they want because that's what feels comfortable for them. So first key is don't wait until you have the baby, please. Um, Do it way beforehand. You know, do it a month or two before you're due to give birth and let people know in such a way that um, this isn't necessarily about them. It's about your entire experience and making sure that you feel comfortable. And that doesn't mean you need to go, I want it this way. The world needs to revolve around me. It's simply that um, we want to make sure that we're bonding as much as possible uh, in an uninterrupted way for the first week after baby's born. We would love to see you in the third or four, fourth week after baby's born when that would be a great time for us to visit. It's simply making sure that people feel included. So you don't want to exclude people because usually the birth of a baby is a time of great joy, but you want to let them know how they can be included and that it's on your terms. Your partner, if you have one, is an amazing gatekeeper or you can but you need to communicate that's the job you need yeah, them to do yeah. and often how to do it um, because sometimes they, especially if they've spent an entire pregnancy allowing you to speak up for yourself and not having an opinion because it's your body that's growing the baby, mm-hmm. they may not feel like they're able to talk to, especially your friends and your family about these things. So this is where texting and email can be really great because not only can you do it en masse, Uh, But you can also do it in such a way that it's not about any specific person. It's simply about your experience. We did something similar when Bennett was born. We knew we were only having one baby. And before he was born, about a month before, we told everyone relevant that may have been interested in visiting that we weren't having visitors for certainly not at the hospital and for the not for the first two weeks just because This was going to be our only experience of having a newborn and we wanted to soak it in, um, soak it up, make sure that we were bonding and just give me time to recover from the shittiest pregnancy in all the world. Mm. And I think what happens then is allows you to bond tightly, but it also allows you to include family and they know the rules then. This is when you can visit. We can't wait to see you then. Um, And sometimes if you, so let's say you want to bring family in a little bit earlier than that, um, you can do it with time windows. So I'm a big fan of telling family, much like kids' birthday parties, I bloody (laughs) love it. It's 10 until 12 and then get out. Like, honestly, bring it on. That's my style, right? Um, I love it. So you might do this. You might say we're available for 20-minute visits between this window. Yeah. And then that's it. Your partner at the end of 20 minutes says, okay, it's time to change the baby's nappy. See you later, guys. We can't wait to see you again in June. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Some other later time. I love that. 
Um, I love the time blocking. That's so clever. And um, <laughs> my typical response always is the baby is now currency. So if they want to hug the baby, they need to either bring a meal, do something domestic duty, or hold the baby while you go have a nap or a shower. <laughs> love it. I love it. And until yep. it's like, you need to sign that line if you want to, you know, step over that threshold. So, yes. <laughs> and then, but it's also up to you as to whether or not the baby is currency. Yes. So some mums don't even feel comfortable giving their baby away to be hugged by someone else. Yes. That is up to you. That's your rule. You know, you're allowed to set the rules around all of this, including your nakedness. I remember, uh, I, remember I struggle with that me, a lot. I was, yeah, I was breastfeeding and there wasn't much that I could fit into and it was hot at the time. Bennett was born in March and it was a hot March. Mm. And um, I was breastfeeding and uh, she said, oh, can my neighbour just come in and see the baby? And I was like, I'm literally naked. And she goes, oh, it doesn't matter. Like, she can just come in. And I was like, yeah, no, like, a, no, <laughs> not on any level is this happening. <laughs> And so I think it's just to be, it's about being really clear that you might not realize things happen that you need to have boundaries around because sometimes, especially if it's your first baby, mm. you don't know. No. You don't know what it's going to be like. You don't know that you you might struggle to get to the toilet and back in time before the baby starts crying. Like, and in the meantime, you haven't put a bra on. Like all of those things just know that your boundaries are your friend and it doesn't matter who is disappointed by them, but ultimately you're protecting your personal resources of which most are going into your baby. And you're also protecting your relationship with your partner if you have one, mm -hmm. because right then you both need everything from each other. And it's a hard time. It's a hard adjustment. Really, really hard. Beck, I knew we were going to run out of time before we ran <laughs> out of topics. And the one thing if I can have you back again, I sure. would love that because you yes. you do have this sixth book that's coming out and I feel like that is going to be beautiful to segue into a part two, which is around having conversations with difficult people because yes. we do have, you know, time and time again, and I see this friends, family, clients or whatever, where we we do, we're good. We're, we've got those boundaries up and we've got that timekeeper and we've got that 20-minute time slot and then... There is that person who you are going to have to have a difficult conversation with around yeah. respecting those boundaries and understanding that they exist. So I, before we do our rapid fire, if that's okay, yeah. <laughs> I, I want to say let's pause and we're yeah. going to talk about how to have those conversations with difficult people in a part two episode. Yes, absolutely. I'd love to. Okay. Rapid fire. Three questions. Are you ready? Yes. What is your top tip for mothers? You matter. Why do I always nearly cry when people like, I get to this rapid fire, but I just love <laughs> it so much. Yeah, I do. I think we spend so much time talking about the baby and then the baby's born and it's all about the baby's growth and milestones. And we forget that mothers have an identity. I, I would say that you're doing the most important job in the world and you were important before you got pregnant and you you are just as important after you had a baby. And some people want mothering to be their entire personality. Amazing, wonderful. You save so many kid, kids by being that way. But there are also mothers 
who that is actually not at all the best way for them to function. And they need a whole series of things to round out their identity, including their work, including their hobbies, including their personal time. You matter. All of it matters. Mm. Oh, my God. So beautiful. Um, Do you have like a go-to resource, whether it be a book, a workshop, obviously all six of your books, everyone. (laughs) Get the setting boundaries. Oh, my God. It is like (laughs) I'm going to add this to like our top book list for all of our clients. But do you have, apart from your books, which obviously, but do you have any other resources that you could suggest for people who are about to be parents and they're wondering, shit, where do I start? (laughs) Yeah. Honestly, I think your resources are the people around you. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm not here to sell anything on my website, especially when it comes to pregnancy and mothering, because I honestly think that if you can find that one person who you can laugh about the shit bits with and who sees you and understands you and totally gets it, that's your resource. Mm. When it comes to matrescence, your resources are your people because we need oxytocin. There's so much oxytocin that comes from cuddling a bubba, oh. but you also need oxytocin from people that understand you as an adult as well. Yeah. So go to your people. Love that. And I borrowed this one off Brene Brown. What do you keep on your bedside table? <laughs> just a lamp. That's it. Yeah. Oh, so I love it. Just, it's just a lamp. Um, so Bennett sleeps with us yep. and he's often bouncy and there's a risk that he'll flick a leg over and <laughs> kick a cup off. And so it's literally just a lamp. I do most of my reading. We're talking about books. Yeah. Actually, all of my reading these days as audiobooks because really? I just find it so much easier. Um, I can do it when I'm out walking the dog. Yeah. Um, I just get so much more read that way. And I used to be one of these people that was like, oh, it's not real reading if you listen to it. And now I'm one of these people that goes, oh, that narration was a little bit sus. Like, (laughs) honestly, I'm now like highbrow about the types of narrations that I need in my life. Um, So, yeah, it's all my reading is actually done by audiobooks. I love that. I've only just come to the dark side, I call it, of audiobooks. Um, And I absolutely devoured the Harry Potter series. I've just seen it released with Stephen Fry as the narrator. Was it that one? Yes, yes. Because my friend was absolutely disgusted that I hadn't actually delved into audiobooks before. Oh, my God, you'd actually – oh, but had you read Harry Potter before? Uh, No. No, I I love the movies, but I had never read Harry Potter before. I know. I know. I know. I I was like, oh my God, I've missed out on so many references. And just so much has been, you know, cut from the movies. So um I yes, I I did the audiobook thing because same with you. I'm like, I'm out for a walk, I'm folding the washing, I'm doing some cooking, just sitting on the couch. And I'm like, yeah, I'm just listening to my audiobook. I love it. Yep. Yep. Especially if you've got a child who never stops talking like mine. Yes. Or mom, come sit on the couch with me. And I'm like, you're yeah. on your iPad. You don't want Abs- me to. Do- absolutely. I, yes. yes. She's Here. She's a, I just need to have my feet on you. I need to be touching oh, yeah. you. Yeah. I have a, I have a yeah. barnacle child. Like. Yes. That's what it is. But also buds or noise cancelling headphones can be amazing. An amazing way to decrease the sensory overload of motherhood. Oh. Um, so I actually really find it very relaxing from that. So if you're actually sitting on the couch, I pop on noise cancelling headphones and I listen to my beautiful narration voice whoever I'm listening to and 
my kid can be beside me watching his iPad, but for me, the stimulation is lowered because I'm in my bubble of an audiobook. That's a really good suggestion because I do suffer from that. Like I just have the AirPods yeah. in, not sponsored. Yeah. And yes, I'm <laughs> like, oh God, there's way too much noise. Yes, yes, that is something I have struggled with, the sensory overload with motherhood. Yeah. Like I can't even have the oven um, fan going. If I'm sitting down in yeah. email, I'm like, oh, my God, what is that noise? I yes. Like, what? And I was like, go turn that off. Turn it off. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Beck. it has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. You have been you, very, very generous. And I can't wait to read your next book. It's going to be very Thank exciting. You. Thank and you. It's out next week on May 30. How exciting. Okay, people, go and get Setting Boundaries and then look out for Beck's new book um, about having conversations with difficult people. Yeah, it's just called Difficult People. Love that. Until next time, bye. Bye. If you loved this episode, please hit the subscribe button and leave a review. If you know someone out there who would also love to listen to this episode, please hit the share button so they can benefit from it as well. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to The Science of Motherhood. If you would like to contact us, we are at ifillyourcup.com or you can DM us at ifillyourcup underscore via Instagram. You can find all of our services including our postpartum in-home care and our fill your freezer meal delivery service as well through both those channels. Thanks so much for listening.